Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 341 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I talked to James Kloss of Bitball about their arcade scrolling shoot-em-up, Jetboard Joust. Now, James has been making games for a very, very, very long time. In fact, Jetboard Joust is a sequel to a game that was released in 1989. Yes, I didn't say 1999, 89, and it was made originally for the ZX Spectrum, it was also ported to the Commodore 64 and the Amstrad CPC. So yeah, Skateboard Joust is quite a different game to Jetboard Joust. Um, it's difficult to fathom actually, you sort of throw the skateboard enemies, just kind of land on their heads and they kind of... It, once you get the hang of it, it's actually quite fun, but it's not really immediately obvious what you're supposed to do. And if you look at videos on on YouTube with uh, Skateboard Joust, you see people just don't understand how to play it and they get frustrated and because they've never read the rules or instructions because who, who would do that? Uh, they stop playing, which is sad. But um, Jetboard Joust, which is on all the sort of regular platforms, PC, Windows PC and, and, and Nintendo Switch and what have you, it's a very different game. It's a bit like Defender. In fact, very, very much like Defender. It's a fantastic game. Really fast, beautifully created. Just the flow of play draws me back again and again and again. And I was really, really happy and honoured to have James on the show to chat about its design and development. So, I'm sure you like to hear me do that, right? From the past. Yeah, sure you would. So, Chris, if you'd be so kind. James. Hello. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is James, and I've been making video games of one form or another for about the past 35 years. That's 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 really, really impressive. Um, and we're going to delve into <laughs> that history 
right now because my next question is how did you make him start making video games and i did actually play one of your earliest or was it the earliest title um which is uh well it's 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 skateboard joust isn't it really uh, i believe that was that was actually yeah that was the second one i had mm. published published so published. Uh, so what was your first game then were you a fetus the, like the... you know <laughs> <laughs> well my dad Brought, started bringing home personal computers from work right. when I guess I was about 11, 10 or 11. So that would have been in 1980-ish. Um, and the first one he brought back was a Commodore PET. I don't know if you remember them. They kind of looked a bit like Darth Vader and had a sort of cassette and a keyboard and monitor embedded in one thing. And basically there wasn't a lot you could do with them apart from uh make your own games um so that's what i started doing and then that we kind of segued from there and the next thing we got was a spectrum um and that's where we where i really got into it and started uh, writing in assembler and getting games that could be published and the first one i wrote was a platform game called subterranean nightmare which was uh, basically a rip-off of Jet Set Willy because I'd spend a, lo- a long time kind of reverse engineering the, the level code in Jet Set Willy so I could hack the levels and put platforms in where they weren't supposed to be and things like that. So then I ended up writing my own game based on the kind of reverse engineered level designs that I'd discovered from Jet Set Willy. Um, and then Skateboard Joust was my next game after that. A very different experience, a very different game, a very unique game. I don't see that negative way because <laughs> skateboard joust. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> oh, well, um, it's interesting. You know, we've got we've got you know, Matthew Smith to to thank, don't we, for the creation of Manic Miner and Jet Set Willie and and I yeah. do remember seeing him showing him pictures where he made a circuit board so he could send data from I think it was the TRS eighty or I think it was right which we was using to actually do the assembly on, to then squeeze the data right. in, across into the spectrum. Because <laughs> he wasn't actually right. using the spectrum to program with anymore, and he was using something else. Because why would you want to use that strange, horrible keyboard? Like, no, it's just, just use a TRS-80 yeah. and then, then compile the uh, Z80 code using that, apparently. I think I'm right in saying that. I might be getting wrong. Well, if, he's, if he had a quicker way of getting the data in there, then, I mean, that's because of the the vast majority of the pain with developing for that is every time something crashed you know you'd have to wait five minutes for it to load in again off yeah. cassette tape yeah he wasn't uh, doing that was... at all yeah look it up it's amazing <laughs> he built this circuit board to create a data bus between the two computers that really shouldn't be talking to each other and he did because wow, wow. he was just he just couldn't be bothered he was just like this is more so he spent more he spent a lot of time doing this but in the long run it's paid for itself because it reduced the development time by months yeah, yeah. Because well, didn't, yeah, yeah. I remember when we first got the microdrive for the for the Spectrum. Um, I mean, that was a a revelation, really, because suddenly you were loading something in in a in a matter of seconds, which was taking matter of minutes before. So it sped up development time incredibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still got a stack of them, um, which <laughs> um, which I actually refelted recently. Because all the felts deteriorated now, so I'd I'd got rid of all the felt and put new ones in, so I could still use them. They still hold yeah, data. It's amazing, but that's don't, a commitment. <laughs> it is. It is. So I did play 
um, Skateboard Joust on my Spectrum Next, which I do own. Um, I'm one of the few, just like owning a PS5, one of the few. And <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it's 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 a uh, it's a really lovely game. And um, and obviously you you you've still been making games since the, those those early times. I mean, you you started out an assembler, which most developers these days wouldn't know how to do. That's not a you know, a challenge against them. They don't need to know. It's it's a, it's a thing no. that you don't need to know. It's the only people who need to know that. I believe, forgive me, I'm wrong. Is driver creators and things like that. But uh, I might be ignorant about. It. I think that's true. But uh, if you could sort of like expand on what else you've been doing in this in this period, if you may. Well, after after the spectrum, I kind of got distracted from games for a while and and did a degree in graphic design and the first job I had was actually in sort of digital marketing where I was, I was creative director of a, a company that were doing a large digital marketing product for people like Disney and Cartoon Network and less exciting clients as well, like Boots and things like that. And I did that for a few years and then started really gravitating toward back towards games again because they were being used a lot from a marketing for a marketing point of view, you know, people like Cartoon Network and Disney were using them on websites and we were building uh, you know, quite ambitious projects really in the early days of the internet in terms of sort of multiplayer gaming things and things like that. And really, I just thought this is what I want to do full time. You know, I don't want to be building websites for Boots and Barclays. I want to be making games. So towards the end of the 90s i quit that job and and set up on my own developing games and spent a long time making small games for what are now called feature phones you know the old nokias and things like that um i did a lot of that and then more recently when that market has collapsed moved into producing bigger games of which Jetboard Joust is the first one for PC and consoles. Yeah, I mean, you've obviously witnessed, uh, we had this a lot on this show, and it's great to talk about, especially with developers like yourself. The big year was 2007. Everything changed then. Three things happened. Steam, although Steam was actually slightly earlier than that, but it was, you know, in, uh, in the, uh, Xbox uh, Live Arcade, that happened. And, of course, the Apple stores started going well the apple uh, uh, app store went yeah let's just okay you can make games for this strange little phone we've made which everyone thinks weird is weird but it turns out to be awesome for whatever reason and that changed everything didn't it yeah for, yeah um, it did yeah and for good or real i think it's for good if i may say james uh, it's been you know without that i genuinely believe we wouldn't have the vast array of games that we have now um, yeah, well, I think things like things like Steam and Xbox Live are definitely hugely positive, even though, though there's been a certain backlash against it recently from mm. the sort of indie community. Yeah. I, I think I think they did don't sort of realise <laughs> what they what they didn't have before it existed. If you know no. what I mean, got, um, we owe a lot to their existence. You're right, for good yeah. or you know ill, but they just reduced the barrier of entry. And that's not a bad yes. thing, you know? Um, yes. No, no, it's not on the whole. It's not a bad no, thing. No. Um, and, uh, you know, I always cite things like Journey, 
which I know is a PS3 title, but it doesn't matter. You know, PlayStation went, or Sony went, maybe we should do something. Yeah, maybe. And then you had Pixel Junk games arriving, and then, of course, you had Gone Home and Papers, Please, games that, you know, would not have been anywhere near a publisher. Like, you, I'm sorry, you want me to, to have... You, you, you're a person behind a booth letting people into an East East German, sorry, East European country. And, no! <laughs> Get out! You yeah. Know, but uh, it's now one of the most celebrated games ever made. Um, and uh, Stanley Parable is another one, a game that has no real purpose, but other than to satirically poke fun at the player, which is fine. Which is fine. But, um, yeah, I mean that sort of stuff would have would have never existed without uh, the kind of democratization of those platforms. Yeah, yeah, and this is why I love talking to someone like yourself because you've been working on this for so long. And then if you describe those games to you twenty 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 five years ago, they're like no. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it was kind of <laughs> there was that sort of stuff early on. I mean, you had some yes, weird stuff in the kind did. of early stages of the you spectrum. Did. Stuff. Yeah, it, yeah. It almost when when that sort of home computer scene died, mm. uh, and in uh, gaming switched almost exclusively to consoles. That's when things became very locked down. Mm. So it's mm. kind of, I guess, in that sort of period after the home computer boom and before yeah. uh, Steam and uh, the the consoles started opening up their platforms a bit more, that, that things were very yeah locked down, and you only had the stuff yeah. from the big publishers. That's right. Everyone became really risk averse, didn't they? Really yeah, risk yeah. averse, to the point where there was a period in the late nineties where not late nineties, apologies, mid nineties on the Mega Drive, where it actually it almost become the second collapse because every game was the same. Every yeah. single one was a reskin of a side-scrolling brawler. Like, um, <laughs> it's yeah. not gonna and work. I, mean, I, I sort of lost. I lost interest in that. Yeah. That, that's why I kind of lost interest in console gaming to an extent but mm. around that point because everything did seem to be very much kind of recycled, you know. Yeah, yeah. There were some, ex- you know, exceptions, of course. We all know that. And they're the ones that have stuck around. Like, um, let's see, Desert Stripe. It's still a good game. Painfully difficult, though, but very good. <laughs> so, next question, then. And this is the dreaded third question, which is a little bit nebulous. I apologise for this, James, but I have to ask it because you're a creator of things. And the question is this. What are your biggest influences? (laughs) Uh, In terms of making games... Mm, What are the things? What's um, the thing you find drawn to or you're constantly drawing some morsel of inspiration or something from more than anything? Well, I guess uh, moving away from other other sort of games that I like, I get I, I'm sort of, as I said, I did a degree in design, so I'm very attracted to certain types of graphic design that you don't normally associate with gaming. So I like a lot of stuff like early uh, sort of Marvel comic work, you know, Jack Kirby, that t- type of art, the black and white stuff that he did. Things like uh, Grindhouse uh, movie posters, early horror movie posters, things where there's a lot of flat colour, um, quite vintage in feel, imperfect. Um, some of the Eastern European film poster art. Uh, 
I, I'm attracted to those, that type of artwork, B-movie horror stuff, that's not necessarily what you associate with gaming a lot of the time when everything tends to look like a kind of heavy metal album cover, if you know what I mean. Yes, I mean, indeed, eventually someone made a game that was just dedicated to an album cover because let's just do it, you know. It's just, <laughs> and that's that's fine. Um, but you're right. I've, I've said this before on the show, we need more people making video games that have no interest in Star Wars. And that's, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Really. exactly. So, so I, I draw a lot on those type of right. influences visually, and and I tend to like a lot of quite kind of pulpy stuff in in movies and fiction. I like Lovecraft and that sort of Victorian weird horror genre. Yeah, Edgar Edgar Allan Poe, um, and movies like Starship Troopers was a big influence on Jetboard Joust. You know, with the bug type enemies um yeah that's kind of sci 70s sci-fi yeah i mean that whole film people at the time i knew at the time but now people really recognize like wait this is this is just satire yes yes it is <laughs> the whole thing from yes so the bugs aren't no <laughs> it's just yes now it's lovely to see people wake up to be like the whole thing, yeah. yes, the whole thing. Every it's single aged. word is, you know, it's... Yeah, it's the whole thing is tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> it's, it's it's aged really well, I it think. Has. I watched it again fairly yeah. recently, and I, yeah. I don't I don't think it's really dated very much at no. all. It's um, one of the um, few DVDs I still own, because, you know, most of us got rid of them. <laughs> but it's one of the few <laughs> I still own. It's one of the few that I actually need, because it's so old as a DVD. So I actually got. You, know, you have to turn the DVD over to continue playing the second. Uh, half. Yeah. I remember that. God, that really, uh, that really put a damper on the immersion. It's like all, it? all of a sudden this big hand appears and it says, "You've got to turn over." You're yeah. like, my yeah. copy of Goodfellas is like that as well. Anyway, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, that's really, that's really great that you responded immediately because a lot of developers sit there for quite some time going, "I've no idea." And then eventually we we tease out and we figure out what it is. But it's a it's an odd question. You probably maybe one that you you pondered and it's helped you create and made sure that you always lean into that because I can see from the visuals in 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 Jetboard Joust that, that I can see where that comes from now because there's some weird stuff going on in a good way. Uh, yeah, that's it's very much a constant reference of of mine to try and. Even though I'm obviously referencing early, early arcade games, that there is that visual style that I, that I want, that I like, that I want to bring to it, and it, it's different. You know, there's a lot about visual art and design in gaming that I basically don't really like because, as I said, it draws so much on typical things like fantasy art and yeah, heavy metal album covers and things like that, which I just it does not appeal to me from a, a aesthetic point no. of view. Oh look, it's brown again. Like you know, <laughs> it's like okay, so but yes, I, I do I do hear what you're saying. Um, so next question then, and this one's also a bit of a tough one. So base yourself, and this one is really about you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, possibly, and it is this. What developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Uh, well, that is a difficult question. Uh, I, 
a contemporary one, I wouldn't mm, really. Doesn't, get doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Honestly, one. I've I've had everyone from, you know, John Carmack to Nintendo. It, okay. I mean, it's just well, it doesn't. Well, it can be present or past. Well, past it would definitely be, which is obvious from Jetball Joust, the early kind of Eugene Jarvis <sighs> yes. arcade games. So. Defender I mean, and Ro- Robotron, particularly, mm. which I both I think are both just absolute works of genius. Um, and then a, a little bit later would be on the spectrum the work of the Stamper Brothers, the Ultimate Play the Game, yeah, um, which which was just fantastic and a, and a kind of. I mean, other people, other developers for that platform did get there, but when they started, they were just absolutely leagues above what yes. anyone else was doing. Um, and later, really, I mean, it's a bit ironic because I've just been dissing kind of games that are like heavy metal album art. But, <laughs> uh, the, one of the most recent games I thoroughly enjoyed was Dark Souls and Demon Souls, um, both of which I thought were were absolutely brilliant i've only played the first dark souls um but yeah i, I thought that was absolutely fantastic so i've a, I've a lot of admiration for that team and of course my Miyamoto's work on the you know nintendo um that's something that i always go back to like super mario world on the snares and various iterations of zelda particularly ocarina of time and uh link's awakening on the game boy which i thought was just brilliant yeah, uh, well, uh, all sorts of stuff to 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 delve into there, but uh, no, I mean, I played Demon Souls on the PS3 when people were ranting about it in the journalism world and like, oh, this this game's amazing. It just looks like an average third person action adventure game because from the outset you'd look at it and go, okay, it looks kind of interesting and different. But what's so different about it until you actually played it? Like, oh, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm I'm a bit rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> you mean I can't just steamroll it? No. And well, I, I liked. It's got something to me that reminds me of the early arcade stuff because I I get very. You mentioned Assassin's Creed. I get very bored by certain types of large open world games that to me don't seem to have very much game in them. You know, I I like to be challenged from a gameplay perspective, and I like to be made to work from a gaming perspective rather than made to sort of wander around aimlessly and look under rocks for for notes left by people and that kind of stuff so so i liked demon souls because it it kind of it put that sort of pressure back you know that i felt had been missing from a lot of games really um and that reminded me of the kind of early early arcade games you know the fact that you have to do quite a long run back from the start to get to certain points and these kind of things you know it wasn't soft on the player and it it made you think and react to almost every step of the process which i which i really liked yeah and that's that brave sort of stepping forward and going look let's Give the player some credit, shall we? <laughs> just can we? Yeah. You know, just yeah. give them give them a chance. You know, like I'm sure they're capable of pressing more than one button and moving the thumbstick at the same time. You never know. Yeah. Maybe. You know, and uh, <laughs> that's 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 really helped. Generally, that's helped the 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 field of video game development for quite some time ever since they arrived and as much as people groan and whine and go, oh, here we go, making reference to Souls games like. Well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, there is, yeah. 
So and yeah. and also Newton Jarvis, I mean he's he did help Housemark out with uh, Nax Machina, um, and um, right. so you know he's still about. I think he's still consulting and things like that. And you know for them for him to help out with another twin stick shooter by an excellent developer, um, I mean that's one of my favourite PS4 games ever released. Um, but. Um, yeah, it's a good shout, good shout. And you're right, R- R- um, Robotron and, and Defender, two remarkable games from a remarkable era when they were just... Yeah, they, uh, was, yeah. they were so fast-paced compared to everything else. I mean, you, you, when I think back to those early arcade games, I mean, even though they were classics, a lot of them were very, very ploddy, you know, things like Base Invaders and Asteroids, really, and even, you know, Pac-Man, as excellent as it is, is is kind of quite slow. <laughs> Donkey Kong, you know. I think Whereas... the worst was Lunar Lander. I'd never forget oh, yeah. walking into an yeah. arcade, and there was three cabinets. This is like early eighties, everyone. So I'm showing my age, but and uh, there was three cabinets, and one was Astro- Asteroids, and one was Battle Zone, which is its own beast entirely. Okay, <laughs> let's park that. But then the other one was right next to it was Defender, and most people. Were Crowded round Defender. Can't think why. Oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just took over as well because of the yeah. sound from it yeah. was just something else. I, I think it's because Williams, you know, they used to make pinball games. And I think I think Eugene Jarvis might have even been involved in the design of pinball games. And there's something about those, you know, the way they're just constantly firing score multipliers at you and everything's bouncing around really fast and you... There's so much going on, you know, oh, I've done something good, but I haven't the faintest idea what it is. And I think they get a lot of that, a lot of the vibe from that goes into something like Defender, which which you don't get from games like Space Invaders. Either they're too ploddy. No, I mean, the speed of Defender is about, is a core component of the game. It's just like the reason you're going this fast and if you go too fast very bad things going to happen <laughs> trust me i'm still i'm still terrible at yeah, it though still can't do I can it. barely get past level 2 or 3 yeah that radar <laughs> is everything if you don't look at that radar it's everything but then you look then you look at it too much it's kind of the same time as joust though isn't it joust is a weird one <laughs> yeah joust is odd i mean yeah, I don't, I don't love jazz. No, so much. it's all right. <laughs> there is, I, I mean, but there is something about it that's cool. Mm. I mean, I did draw on that for Jetboard Joust as well, even Indeed, though it's much yeah, more yeah. based on Defender. Yeah, uh, but there is something about Joust that's kind of cool. Just the the overall mechanic, I think it's just, yeah. it's just there's a satisfaction element, isn't it, of actually doing a multiple hit? That's awesome. When mm. you line them up, you somehow get a like. Okay, hit that one. Then got the egg. Then hit the other one. Got the egg and hit another one. It's just like oh, that's the best. But I don't know. It's kind of fleeting. Most of the time, it's running away from a pterodactyl. (laughs) (laughs) In an on while riding an ostrich, which again, (laughs) no. So anyway, all right. So last question of the first half is this. We have to ask this question because it's a video game podcast, which, you know, we're then legally obliged to ask this question of our guests, which is, what are you playing right now? Uh, well, I had a, a quite a f- fallow period, I guess, when I was finishing off Jetboard Jouse, where I wasn't 
playing anything very much at all because it became too much like a sort of busman's holiday yeah but recently i've been um trying to get back into a few the indie titles that i missed out on really um because i've only recently believe it or not got a pc for gaming and been able to play some of the stuff that i'd wanted to play so i've been playing things like nuclear throne um downwell scourge bringer which i really like though <laughs> talking of games being difficult that's kind of in the extreme yeah Have you that? <laughs> it's <laughs> there's many well, describe it to me because there's so many that have, i mean down well i've definitely played but you know considering it looks like a yeah, scourge bringer is a fairly yeah. it's a fairly recent release so it's kind of a i guess a sort of vaguely metrovate metroidvania-esque roguelike but it's incredibly action roguelike but it's very very fast paced the art in it is just i think is just incredible Mm. um very very well done pixel art and the kind of weight and movement of the main character just feels absolutely spot on but it is just incredibly fast paced and incredibly difficult but it's it's brilliant it's kind of drawn me in really from the art style i get a bit frustrated with rogue with roguelikes in a way that's sometimes i think they just punish the player a bit too much but there's something about scourge bringer that is just keeping me coming back to it to die for that <laughs> <a> millionth time <laughs> i'll have to check this out because the one of the it was a roguelike that i uh, played and uh, had interviewed developers for was foregone which is very good. Uh, beautiful game. That. that was uh, when I first played it. It was all early access, but I think it's fun. It's actually officially out now, and they've improved a lot on it. Uh, but it's a fantastic game. But yeah, Foregone. Uh, that's that's a that's a good one. I really enjoyed that one. Really got engrossed with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Down, I, Downwell, I really like. I mean, that's mm. quite old, old now. I know, but I think it's it's really really good the way it's implemented and the feel of everything and the sort of feedback is is excellent it's so fluid isn't it that's what i love about yeah. that because yeah. they've got no palette <laughs> and everything's really it's just nothing it just flows and and goes like the clappers if you let it but you're all you are <laughs> rewarded for being careful within reason yeah so. yeah it's good they seem to it's you know it's got the balance about right i think though i do i do still get frustrated by this whole go back to the right back to the start thing yeah roguelikes you know yeah. i wish there was a way to sort of kind of practice a bit for the on the later stages even even if you couldn't yeah you know actually I mean, play the earn, game through yeah. if you know what i mean you um, earn the right to get to that level and then go okay now i'm just going to kick you in the rear end and then you got to start over again enjoy yeah, which is it's weird because it's what games used to be like, you know, yeah. on the spectrum. And yeah, things. It doesn't make of... it right anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that's the end of the first half. Well done, you made it. <laughs> let's let's move on to the second half of the show where we delve deep into Jetboard Joust.
Nice question. It's more like a, a request, really. In your own words, James, what is Jetboard Joust? Uh, Jetboard Joust is a frenetic future retro arcade shmup with a, I guess, a, a healthy dash, but not too much, or a dash of roguelike thrown in. Just a smidgen, like a, like a pinch, but it's definitely yeah. there. Um, it is a lefty-righty shooter, as, I, as the technical mm-hmm. term. Um, yeah. But it, it, it isn't like Gradius or anything like that, nor is there anything, like, no. anything, anything wrong with those, but Bullet Hell has its place, I believe. It's a good place, and it's fine. I do like those, but this is not that kind of game. No, uh, I've always been more, more drawn to the sort of reaction-based shmups Right. Rather than the kind of, I I would think of them as almost sort of memory-based shmups, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's this pattern. Hang on. There you go. Move yeah. there. Then I move there. It's like it's like Rick Dangerous only for. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, okay. Anyway, um, but yes, a good good point. Good point. Uh, I just like the tactical element of uh, what options and upgrades you get while you're flying around, which is relevant to Jetboard Joust, for there are many, yeah. many. Many upgrades and many, many weapons. <laughs> but um, yes, it is a lefty-right shooter. At it, it, its core, it, ostensibly, uh, it plays the structure of it is very like Defender in one aspect, yeah. in that you have to rescue people. But it is yeah. way easier to play than Defender is. Um, yeah. For one of the key reasons that I've found is a, it's not going as fast, and you know where you are relative to other things which is brilliant well done James please don't think we're patronising it's just that could not have been easy and we're going to talk about that later but I just want to talk about the sound design oh yeah yeah because that that's I just this is the first thing I want to talk about because it's amazing oh, I don't thank know, you thanks I don't know how you did this and you must have Use certain sonics or something, or maybe you maybe didn't know what you're doing. Let's do it by accident, but you somehow made it so the noises you needed to hear at the right time were at such a pitch and directed in such a way that you knew exactly what they were, why they were being emitted, and why they're important. It's amazing. Well, I'm really good. It's really good to hear you say that. I spent an, a lot of time on the on the sound design. Um, I programmed all the sounds from scratch on analog synthesizers, which was, uh, I don't know whether I felt like it was flogging myself a bit, but I I wanted to get something um, that felt different. Well, um, that's exactly it. It's how can I put this? I'm going to ask you the question about the fundamental question is how did it come about? You've already hinted at it, but how did you make this layered Sound, which was ultimately what this book it, it is layered. This is a layered soundscape that is in the some of it's got background stuff happening, but there's much more important stuff happening on top of that. Talk us through that strategy and how you develop this, even if, if if there was one. It seems like there was one. Can you talk us through? Yeah, I, I use, I mean, so for instance, the background music and the effects are all generally in the same key. So I pitch all the sounds so they should be harmonically consistent when they're good and <laughs> deliberately pitch things so they should be harmonically dissonant when they're bad. So 
everything is in the key of I can't remember which key it is now. I think it's A minor or something like that. Um, and then I throw in things that are deliberately atonal when they're bad things. So that's why sounds that are kind of important, particularly when they're warnings and things like that, uh, sound particularly jarring. And I also do things like when things loop when they're supposed to be jarring, I make sure that they do things in loops that would be thought of as kind of odd meters, you know, like a five, kind of five, four time or, or things like that. Um, so you, you kind of don't really pick up on that as a player, but because it's slightly off and slightly, it has that slight dissonance, kind of rhythmic dissonance as well as harmonic dissonance, you pick it up as something that's uh, you've got to listen to or stands out from everything else. Yes, the the the, the what well, I call it the bleating. This is the bleating from uh-huh. the kidnap folk. It is so like, oh uh, yeah, it's so plaintive. Like, please, like, I'm just killing this <laughs> bug thing. I'm gonna turn into oh, fine, fine, you know. And uh, it's and just there was, brilliant. There was- it was difficult to balance some of them like like that sort of a warning, the, the abduction warning sound when something is getting abducted, because that happens so often in the game. Um, and my initial iterations of it, it was just far too annoying. So I kind of got around that by having it gra- gradually rise in volume as something moves towards the top of the screen. So it starts off very quiet. Um, and as the abductee is carried to the top of the screen it gets louder and louder and that means it's not actually as grating when it was when it was just at full volume the whole time but i think it was just doing people's heads in who were testing it i just want to congratulate you on something that's seen people regard as like secondary or, or even tertiary most good developers don't uh, they do know that. Yeah, um, I'm really, I'm really, I'm really glad you picked up on that. So thank you for mentioning it. No, it's just that's the first thing that struck me. Oddly enough, um, when I realised that I, I knew, because everything's moving so fast, I need all my senses to figure out what's going on, and sound mm-hmm. is one of those. Thank you very much, um, and uh, that's done a fantastic job. So my five point one surround sound had a whale of a time thrown out around my living room. <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Next question is about the special weapons. You have your standard little blaster, which is say little, does a lot of damage. The range is a bit limited, but it does a lot of damage. But there's a whole, there's, there's many, many special weapons that you get that have a limited ammunition, which we'll talk about later. But I just want to, what I noticed that whenever I picked up a weapon, I took great delight in experiencing it and realising that the way I played the game altered quite dramatically uh, depending on what weapon I had in my in my hands. How have you found designing them knowing that you know it does alter the experience of the of the play uh, depending on what you've got on what the player is wielding at the time? Well I I really wanted to make weapons that felt significantly different to each other so one one of the things i find disappointing about some uh, some roguelikes uh, is that all the weapons are kind of the same you know so you might have a pistol and you might have a shotgun and it's really just the same it just fires bigger bullets or it fires 
three sets of bullets at once or whatever it's it's still just firing the same kind of bullet just at different sizes so i wanted to get away from that and make you know a shotgun that felt like a shotgun and these very other sort of fantastical weapons that 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 had a different tactical element and was significantly different to each other. I mean, some are still vaguely the same, but I think on the whole, uh, they are very different. And to have them that are, you know, some are much more suited to close range play, others from, you know, long, long distance, long range play. Uh, and in terms of balancing the gameplay, there was just an awful lot of having to play, you know, through the game with just using one particular weapon and, and and it just took it took a long time right um, yeah I and the other thing imagine. the other thing it, when i initially wrote the game it, the weapons were presented in kind of a sort of standard i guess sort of campaign type unlock path you know so you only unlocked weapons at certain points so when you unlocked weapon x you knew the player was at this point in the game and therefore i could make that weapon so powerful uh, but then i switched to a, a more sort of roguelike format where you can get these weapons at any point which meant the entire thing had to be rebalanced from scratch which was yeah pretty painful yeah. but worth it i think yeah absolutely <laughs> um one of the earlier ones i picked up was a sniper rifle which is just hilarious yeah yeah it's just like why has this got <laughs> yeah. a recoil oh, of course it does i've shot a sniper rifle <laughs> Unless you actually really brace yourself, it's it's they just yeah, uh, and you are on a jet board after all, so you've got nothing to brace yourself against. So you know, you've got to go somewhere. So backwards you go. Yeah, th <laughs> th things like that, you know. I wanted to because it, it's ridiculous, really, having a sniper rifle in a game that's so fast paced because you've got no time to aim. But I just kind of thought, oh, I want to have a sniper rifle. There's got to be a sniper rifle of some sort in there. So I just had to try and find a way where it kind of felt like a sniper rifle, but it was still playable within the yeah, context. Yeah, it's a big old bullet it emits, isn't it? It's a big old bullet. Like, oh, blimey, look at the size of that thing. Oh, I see. Yeah. No, that's why. It... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is an encouragement in Jetboard House for the player to continue to upgrade their equipment in order to make any progress in the forthcoming level or levels. Mm-hmm. How have you found designing the environments and the levels and enemies when they're pitted against these souped-up players? What have you found to make sure that it doesn't become a trudge, like a, like a it's still challenging without becoming unfair? Uh, well, there's a lot of play testing, and there's a kind of there's a an algorithm really what the way the levels are generated procedurally so there's what i call a kind of difficulty value that's awarded to each level and then you get enemies that kind of total that difficulty value um and one of the core things is that the enemies who come to face you on jet boards are armed with the same weapons that you get and they upgrade at a similar rate to which you can upgrade your weapons um so you kind of have to upgrade your weaponry to keep pace with the rate at which the enemies are upgrading theirs if you see what i mean that's right that's the it's the it's the it's the you know arms race 
between you and the and the enemies um and i found that fascinating like definitely there's the strategy involved like should i go for that level to give me more armor or do i go to the secret treasure room hmm? give me more money yeah, that, to, you know it's good yeah that i ver i very much wanted to give the player that type of decisions you know so they they navigate a way through where they can choose a particular route yeah based on their play style and based on you know how they might be doing at a particular point and i wanted them to have that sort of trade-off between you know do i go for the jet suit or do i upgrade or do i go this route where there's more weapon upgrades and you know those make those type of choices yeah and it's just really just makes you feel like well, it, was, it was my decision i was gonna i knew it was gonna be tough but i i could have gone with the other one but no 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 very slay the spire like very good i like that <laughs> so the last question i know all good things but they do come to an end. I love thinking it was good anyway. Um, why are there limitations placed on the player in Jetboard Joust with respect to ammunition, the ability to joust, after the game is called Jetboard Joust, and yet your ability to joust is restricted. You can't do it all the time. You can't spam yourself all across the level. Hmm. Um, and of course, finally, the uh, the what I call the Breath of the Wild, the incident of durability of weapons. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, why why are all these restrictions in place? How how did they become layered into the Jetboard Joust experience? Uh, well, the the Joust one is the easiest one to explain, and that that's because simply that's so powerful that if that was unlimited, uh, the game would be far too easy. Yeah. Um, and it, initially initially that was going to be one of the main attacks the player had but i found really if it did limited damage or if you could get um damaged yourself while you were carrying it out it became too frustrating to execute so the the way to make it a, a um the, the a, an attack to which lives up to the title of the game it really had to be super super powerful and you had to be pretty much invincible while you were carrying it out and that obviously means you can't give infinite number of them to the player otherwise they become much too powerful um so so that was the reason why that is limited it's a bit like your smart bomb in defender you know it's kind of your get out of jail a free card really um so that's why it's limited the durability of the weapons and the limited ammo were really to try and get the player to have to spread their play style across a number of different weapons um because uh i didn't want players really to play through the game just using one weapon you can you kind of can do that if you want but the fact that there's a condition attached to the weapon means that if you do that you have to adopt a certain different tactics to the way you move through you know you can't just if you're going to use just one weapon you can't spam it basically you've got to use it judiciously and you've got to go for more kind of repair upgrades when you're making your pathway uh, through the different levels so it forces the player to adopt a different play style and make certain decisions whereas if i didn't have that durability factor it'd be much easier to just pick up a very powerful weapon like the rpg or something like that and just go through the game spamming that yeah yeah i just i just found it fascinating that these things are precious you shouldn't just sort of 
everything had a resource. These are resources that you must recognize. And mm. you don't quite go into the BFG syndrome, which is what I call when people get an amazing thing and then keep it for the entire game and never use it. To be like, oh, I've got that special potion. I remember I'll, I'll keep that for yeah. keepsies, keepsake for when I get the big boss, then never use it. Um, yeah you know you did- yeah there are games where that happens aren't there and yeah i did i didn't i definitely didn't want to do that the other thing i didn't want to do is make the weapons deteriorate in terms of their effectiveness as they um as the as the condition level goes down so all the condition level going down does is reduce the rate at which you get ammo drops um so it's kind of a that that in itself is another way that forces the player to stop using a particular weapon and and either switch to the default weapon or pick up something else and try something else which has its own associated play style yeah yeah i I just it's really adds a little layer of of granularity to things and strategy and tactics maybe to what is a very very fast arcade game um so that's that's what really sort of threw me so jetball joust uh, it's developed by uh, Bitbull, which is a great name, by the way. Where did they come from? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, well, I just wanted something. The, the bit thing was obvious, and I thought yeah. Bitbull is kind of aggressive. And yeah. bit, Bitbull, I had this idea of a sort of kind of cross between a bull and a pit bull that was <laughs> made out of bits. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely that done. doesn't sound... That doesn't sound too weird. But no, no, I, I registered that domain about oh, about 20 years ago, but right. now with the sort of rising cryptocurrency, I'm getting all sorts of requests from people saying, I want to buy your domain because they want to turn it into something to do with cryptocurrency. Mm, horrible. Anyway, and this, so yes, Jebbal Jazz <laughs> is also published by Freedom Games, I understand. And yeah. it's out now. At the time of uh, recording and etc. on Nintendo Switch, which is what I've been playing it on, it's also available on Windows PC and Mac OS. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, and and Linux on the 18th as well. There you go. I always hesitate. We get, we get people writing in going, "What about this and that other platform?" But uh, yeah, I, I've been playing on the Switch to say, but it's a fantastic game, and uh, I have a I have a Mac laptop because you know it's it can. They don't die. So, or what they do, or what they do is catastrophic. It's like, yeah, we're done. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're sorry. Sorry. Nice knowing you, but I'm done. So, um, but no, uh, well done for making such an extraordinary game, James. I know you've been at this for many years, but Jetboard Jazz is a special one, and I'm going to be streaming it very soon. I'm happy to say. So oh, fantastic. So um, I've been uh, I've been streaming uh, Steel Battalion on Saturdays. That's that's an experience. Do you know? Do you know that Steel Battalion? No, I don't. I don't. Okay, yeah, that's that's a game Capcom released twenty years ago on the Xbox uh-huh. with a with a controller with two joysticks and three pedals, and it's, <laughs> you, you you basically have to drive a big sort of robot across the battlefield. It's amazing, but wow. um, yeah, just look it up, Steel Battalion. What a thing. But on Sundays, I do a variety stream, and I've been streaming all sorts of weird and wonderful things, and Jetball Joust will be one of them very soon. Oh, great, great. Um, But, James, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm glad you did. And you're more than welcome to come back, because we have had many 
many return guests for the show who's been going for quite some years and uh, therefore people come back going, I made a new thing. Oh, do you want to come on and talk about it? Yes. So you're more you're pushing against an open door, James, if you want to do that. Thank you. But until then, well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com. <laughs>